Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're joined by Ulla Brockenhus Schack, managing partner of the Danish seed fund, Seed Capital. To many international VCs, Seed Capital is the local deal flow partner in Denmark, a result of Ulla's untiring work to champion Danish startups on the European venture scene for more than 15 years. Seed Capital are on their fourth fund, have invested in 47 companies, and their portfolio counts greats like Trustpilot, Vinvino, Lunar, Cardlay, and Templify. And their exit track counts notable companies like Endomundo, Libratone, and Mofibo. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Do you get cold inbound deal flow that you'd wish you could help but can't invest in? You might consider directing them to the European VC's newly launched self-paced fundraise acceleration program and community. It's tailor-made for founders about to raise their pre-seed or seed round and gives them a clear 10-step process to go from wanting to raise to ready to raise. It's community-centered, giving them access to mentors and fellow founders to spar with around their process, plans, and pains. Stop sending founders on their way with an empty referral to another VC firm or angel group. Send them to a community and resource that will actually help them go from minus cold outreaches to a deliberate fundraising plan that will actually work. Send them to the europeanvc.com forward slash raise. Ola, thank you so much for finding the time to be with us here today. It's so cool to have you with us. It's a pleasure. I've looked forward to it. Ah, thank you. Full disclaimer to our audience here, I'm of course also a Danish person and so are you. And as such, I'm quite tempted to say that I've almost grown up with you as the godmother of VC. <laughs> Thanks. So that, that means that I have to uh, ask you a question here, which is you've been the managing partner of Seed Capital since 2005 and your involvement both personally and as a fund in the Danish tech success almost cannot be overstated. So the first question I have to ask is, what has happened over those years? What was it like back then when you started and what has taken you now and what have you learned on that journey if you should pick out just one big thing? Oh, I've learned a lot, I must admit. One thing that's driving it all is passionate entrepreneurs, but I guess we've become a lot more focused in our investment strategy. We tended to spread ourselves towards biotech, clean tech, it was called then, now it's back in a new form, med tech, and then hardware and software. And over the years, we've found that, you know, with a small team, it's necessary to be very focused. So today we are much more software investor in tech, a little bit of hardware. And one thing we also have learned, uh, and we've been sort of persuaded to try out different things, but that is the importance of being focused also geographically when you're early stage. So we're seed stage investor, but we're not really an early seed stage investor, rather a little bit later. So typically (laughs) we'll invest one to two years before Series A. So that's 
one thing we've learned. We've also learned that it was and it's still very, very hard to get technology companies out from the universities. I was a managing partner of a small organization parallel to building seed capital that was trying to build tech companies out of the university environment. That is still very, very difficult for many reasons. We tend to invest with entrepreneurs. Many of them come from university, but have been out in the, <laughs> in the in different jobs, <laughs> in different <laughs> jobs before. And that allows them to scale much faster. I also think that massive focus on unit economics, addressable market and team, but that's not very different from what other good VCs are doing. So, I think one thing that stands out clearly in your deck also is that you have succeeded in bringing in a lot of capital to your existing portfolio companies, which of course in Denmark being a small ecosystem is something that's naturally quite an accomplishment. You've raised nearly 2 billion euros for your portfolio companies. I'd love to hear a bit about how you've done that, what your learnings have been and best practices. Well, you know, if the company is right and it can scale and the addressable market is large and the team is strong and convincing. I think that there's a lot of very capable international investors out there looking for that kind of company. In this sort of ecosystem, we're really playing the role of identifying and maturing potential companies. And then we have a partner strategy very clearly because we believe that after we've done that, we need to get international VCs to invest. And we built a good relationship with them over the years. But we've also seen that it's almost easier for the right kind of company to raise 100 million euros than to raise 20 million euros. <laughs> so there's a lot of money out there, but they're all looking for the next potential category winner. And our job is really to identify them early on and try to groom them and help them prepare for that ongoing journey. Actually, we've raised, I just added the numbers up, 2.3 billion euros. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a lot of money. But, you know, we're as happy to raise the first seed round of maybe 2 million euros. That is as important on the ongoing journey for any company. So it's really interesting to try to balance this huge spread in what we can anticipate from you know, this little seed company that we have to take care of to these massive financing rounds. I'm curious, Ola, thinking about what has happened in the European ecosystem during COVID and in these post-COVID times as well. Building alliances, of course, hasn't been as easy when it comes to maybe making the first meetings because you need to get that report built and that's difficult when you can't meet in person. But maintaining relationships and making deals happen quicker is in many VCs respects that, you know, they see that as having been easier during COVID because everyone has been more ready to do things online. What are your perspectives there? I think that the COVID has shown us that tech companies are extremely resilient, but also that we can become as VCs a lot more effective using Teams, Zooms, whatever, online meetings and reach out to people, spend half an hour and just get up to date with things. So I think that that has also taught us that you don't need to travel to London, Madrid or the US to meet up with people. I think that we have learned that. When that is said, we also really look forward to meet people, to have a dinner together, laugh. You know, it tends to become very effective, everything. Not so much small talk because we tend to schedule meetings every half hour. <laughs> so I think that we're gradually moving into the next phase, which is going to be good. 
Could you maybe expand a bit on what your adaptation strategy is going to be over the next six, 12 months? I'm thinking that you've got a lot of meetings that you need to catch up on, but I'm also guessing that you have some adaptations to your former partner strategy to the new environment. Personally, I think that me and the partners and also probably some of the entrepreneurs, we've found out that you can balance your life a little bit better. And I believe that personally, I will stay working in my house, which I am right now, one to two days a week rather than spend, which I have done over 20 years. I spent two hours in traffic going to and from work every day. And that just leaves a lot of extra time. I honestly don't think I will change much. I think we will do more meetings in general. But I think also that really the trigger point for us was the IPO of Trustpilot this spring that really put us on the international radar. So international growth funds, General Atlantic and others, they reached out to us to understand what else we were doing. After a very effective period of time, they ended up investing in one of our portfolio companies, Dixa. And so that's just a very good example of that. Even if we are a seed investor in a quote, little Denmark, the fact that we do have a strong portfolio and that we keep investing all the way to exit, that just gives us a new sort of recognition, I think, among international VCs that I hope we can build on to help the next generation of companies uh, get a strong investor funders. Well, you actually gave me a cue there and sorry for rambling here, David, <laughs> <laughs> but I need to follow up on the allocation strategy that you described there being that you follow on all the way on to exit. I'm curious there because I've always been, of course, a favorite of large allocations for follow-on investments. But lately, I've been reading a lot from the people who argue the opposite. So saying that a seed investor, what seed investors do well is pick seed investments. They don't do A investments well. All you do there, you'll follow on. If index invests with you, then you'll follow on there. Otherwise, you shouldn't really think that you can do something that the Series A and Series B investors can do. Well, the purpose for us really is to maximize the returns to our LPs. We've been in this business, as you said, 20 years, and we've learned the hard way. We're not saying that one strategy is better than the others, but we just say that for us, it has proved to be with the capabilities that we have to be the best strategy. So we'll invest much more selectively, but we will also spend a massive of time helping the companies get the seed investment to help them mature and get ready for the international VCs who typically will invest from Series A and onwards. When we look at the statistics, I think that we have about in the fund three, we have 65% of our investments have received a Series A funding. And that's against sort of an average in Europe of 20% which is really a testimony to the fact that, yes, of course, Denmark can produce strong companies. We can find them and be allowed to invest with them and help them get ready for the next round. But there are certain steps and you really need to be focused and spend a lot of time. So it's a balance. Other companies or funds, maybe they have a more broader strategy and will invest in 30 to 40 companies in a seed stage and then only one or two they will follow. We will follow those that make sense. And typically, we had anticipated two companies to become potential category winners. And we experienced in Fund 3 that we actually had five. So we went back to our LPs and have raised a growth fund so that we can continue to grow 
these companies and remain a meaningful investor with them. And typically, the founders like to have a local investor who's been there all the way and remember all the stories and the reasons why. I need to ask a more kind of Denmark-centric question as an outsider, and I'm shifting a bit topics here, Ulla, which is I've been hearing some conversation about small IPOs in the Nordics. And so we're talking about, I think it's called growth stock exchange or something like that. I might be using the wrong terminology, but I'm very curious to know your thoughts because we're hearing about founders talking about doing an IPO for what would be, I would say, maybe a small series A or whatever. I'm curious to know your thoughts on that and particularly the impacts that that has down the road, because I'm a bit wary of it, if I'm being honest, because I'm not sure they really understand <laughs> what that means. What are your thoughts there? I've always been very careful and also <laughs> a little bit skeptical. Many companies that have successfully listed have actually been companies where the more experienced, I can say, investors have declined to invest. And then they persuade some advisors and the stock market to go out. So that, of course, is big concern because you can only cheat so many times, then window is closed. So it closed 10 years ago <laughs> and then it opened up again. And actually, a number of investments have been made. And we've also always looked a little envious to Sweden, who have had a very vibrant market for a number of other reasons, also for early stage. But I tend to think that we as investors, whether it's business angels or others, we have a responsibility to not take companies public until a significant part of the risk has been taken out. So this summer, we actually listed Odoyoyo, which is like a Shopify for small restaurants. Yeah. And they have about just under 5,000 restaurants in their portfolio. You know, they're cash flow positive. And of course, if we decide to keep growing, maybe we'll spend more cash. But it's solid. The risk is taken out. It's a well-managed company that we can take public. But otherwise, I'm concerned and I share your concern. We have to take care of our investors too. And especially in these markets, it's not the institutional investors, it's small individual private investors. And that's also something I wanted to ask you because I think people who are a bit outside of this industry might not really understand what it's about. And it looks really sexy. You know, I want to be part of it. I want to invest maybe some of my pension money into it or whatever. But there is a big risk there in educating the retail investor, right? To what is this asset exactly, right? Do you feel that is being done? Do you think, uh, you know, what could be done better on that front? I think that the threshold to become listed should be sharper. Honestly, you have a position in the ecosystem where you need to be worried about what you say. I honestly think that the definition of many of those companies is that they have been declined by VC investors and then they are being dressed up as VC companies and then they're being listed and sold off to retail investors as if they were VC potential companies. But in fact, the definition of them is that the VCs declined when they tried to raise their Series A or Series B. I do not understand why uh, NASDAQ don't care more about the reputation of the uh, early stock exchange. That's my view. Yeah, but I also think that they are really trying hard because they really want to have as vibrant a market as we've seen in Sweden, which have helped a number of very strong companies get through. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a balance yeah. and understand where they're coming from. Maybe now that we are knee deep in the Danish ecosystem, maybe we should ask you uh, what you'd say is the main difference between the Danish ecosystem 10 to 15 years ago to what it is today and what's better and what's worse. 
I think there's very little that's worse. I think it's all going towards the better. We see a lot of serial entrepreneurs coming with business cases. We see much more experienced management teams, or we help them get more experienced teams. I think that the number of business angel investors have increased a lot. What is still very disappointing is the amount of capital in the market and the level of competition in the market. Unfortunately, it's very low here. It's a little counterintuitive maybe to say that I want more competition, but I think that by the fact that having more funds, even more pre-seed kind of funds in the market will really take more potential out of the market and also will sharpen everyone that there is competition. But it will also increase the international attention towards Denmark. What do you think, Ola, is the main reason for the lack of capital, early stage capital? in, in that, that is uh, really the political and tax environment here. In Denmark, I've been through and participating in some think tank and what have you. In Denmark, people are very smart, as they are in many other countries, and they do tend to save up in where it makes most sense. And in Denmark, over the last 30 years, we have incentivized people to put money in their homes, in their house, and in pension funds. And Denmark have huge pension funds, but they don't invest in venture. They don't invest in Danish venture and maybe a little bit internationally. So a lot of the savings are actually gone out. That's one thing. The other is that our tax system is not very motivating to start up your company in Denmark, to be honest, because they will charge 60% of your earnings eventually. Yeah, yeah. I want to pose a question that someone you know very well, Lars Tinkor, Danish founder and angel investor, asked this. The first part I'll ask wasn't exactly what he asked, but the sentence was in there. And that is, should you be the next Danish prime minister? If you should, what would you do? What would be the most important thing for our ecosystem? Yeah, well, I would really like to change some things for the ecosystem. I've been trying to work for that over the years, but I'm a really, really bad diplomat. <laughs> so so I should definitely not be a politician, but instead working from the sideline. First of all, that has been my mantra over the last 10-15 years. It has to be more attractive to be involved in a startup or in a venture growth company. Typically, when we attract good people, they will go for very low salary for a number of years. And then when they finally get their either their stocks that are sold or when we give them stock options, they get all the bonuses and profits in one year, typically. And that means that the whole sum is taxed by 60%. And then we have tax on shares, which is 42%. In Sweden, it's uh, 26 or 28. I think the risk reward for entrepreneurs in Denmark is not sufficiently well balanced. Then I would actually also say that, you know, the pension funds, they are established by workers in Denmark to secure their old time. <laughs> What about the next gen? We need to have the next gen growth companies built in Denmark in order to have strong, well-earning employees that makes the next generation of pensions. And I think they should be incentivized, quote, 
<laughs> to invest up to 5% of their balance in, you know, companies being built out here. Yeah, yeah and uh, in many countries, at least from my perspective, what's unfortunate is then that when you do those tax schemes, then it's limited only to direct investment into companies. So you can't put yeah. that money into VC funds, which would yeah. for the most part be the wisest move. <laughs> and, and that's a quite unfortunate, I think. We've actually created a small feeder fund through the Danish Business Angel Association to our fund for we got 20 private investors who would normally not get access to a venture fund uh, to come in through that. And I think maybe there are different vehicles and models we could think of in order to get people access to some of the new startups on the scene. And that's definitely something we're seeing across Europe as well, that funds are doing that kind of thing. And that's, of course, very fortunate. Well, now we just talked about tax regimes and everything for founders and, and early employees. I'm a bit curious. I'm quite sure you guys are registered in Denmark, but the thinking of a manager in Denmark, where you should incorporate your fund, what do you see in the Danish ecosystem that people tend to do? Do we incorporate in Denmark or do people go to Luxembourg or Delaware? or Some go to Luxembourg. Not that any of the venture funds go to Delaware, as I understand it. Maybe some of the private equity funds do. We think it's hard enough to work with startups and get good at that. We're not very good at techs, I must admit. We're really lousy at it. But I guess some of the big funds that have now invested inside ventures, General Atlantic and so forth, they can help the companies if that's an area that makes sense to focus on. Building a company where you have a product that customer love and try to get unit economics to work and scale it internationally, that's where we are focused on. But the rest we're not very good at. Nah, of course not. I'm just asking because we have many emerging managers and the trend we're seeing in Europe is that the people incorporate in the US. So as both get access to angel list investments, but also because the framework is just quite a bit more easy to handle than most European countries. Ulla, I want to kind of deep dive on something you said. And we've had many, many guests on our show explaining this kind of evolution of going from fund one, fund two, fund three. And as they increase the fund size, they also increase the geographic scope of what they're doing. Yeah. You guys don't believe in that. Right? No. You're really double downing in Denmark. So drive us through that rationale and make us understand what you guys are thinking there. Uh, it's been something we have considered for over the years, you know, shouldn't we have a Scandinavian focus? I mean, Sweden is a hugely attractive market. We would also come in as the last resource, kind of not sort of being very well entrenched there. But I think the main reason we decided to focus on Denmark, that's two reasons for that. First of all, we look at the competition and the deal flow. So are there enough deals, attractive deals for us here? And we have sort of hand analyzed eight years of tech deal flow. And we can conclude that there's about 130 companies in the tech space each year that get above a million dollar funding and about 30 of them mature to a stage where it's relevant for us to invest. And we would invest in three to four of them each year. So for us, that's sufficient. Our thresholds are high. <laughs> that's one thing. And then we tend to be able to get these investments. If there had been 10 other funds, we would have to cast the net broader. The other very important dimension is that for these companies and for us to succeed, we really need to build 
them to be ready for Series A and, you know, to plan the funding journey and break it up in relevant milestone in order for them to be capable of raising an international round. That's something we spend a lot of time with the companies. And we believe that you can maximum have five to six companies that you work with at any point in time, and they have to be near you so you can meet with them very regularly in order to help them. And that's not possible if you have too many companies and if you have too long distances. So we really try to focus. We can see now, despite being uncertain whether it was right, we look at our financial performance now, it seems to have been working very well. Very interesting. I guess it also positions you as the um, kind of go-to partner for later stage funds trying to tap into the region, right? Yeah, yeah. So we try to balance this about being sort of the preferred partner for local entrepreneurs and then also as the local deal flow partner for international VCs. So when they come here, we have a desk where they can sit so they feel that they have a place when they're away from home. That has worked really well. That's interesting. So what you're saying there, Ola, is that you at the seed capital headquarters at your personal home <laughs> have have a desk have an actual desk for your deal flow partners or later stage investors when they come to Denmark they have a home by you Yes, yes, of course. And the coffee machine and the meeting room so they can have uh, meetings. And some of them will call me up and ask, we found this company, we want to invest. Do you know any of them? La, la, la. And we will then have a conversation and try to advise as good as we can. And how many do you have in that partnership model? How many later stage investors are you working that closely with? Well, it's not really a model and formalized. I don't think that makes sense because, uh, I mean, frequency of an international VC, you know, Zone or Balderton or Schienewijk or whoever, the frequency is not that high, but we will touch base with about, I think, maybe at least 30 funds on a semi-annual basis. And then, of course, we haven't seen many of them for a long time because of the COVID, but hopefully they will start flying in soon. Everything you're saying makes me think you have a very hands-on approach in helping the entrepreneurs with their funding path. As you said, you share that you don't think that it can be done when you go over five, six, whatever that number is, but there's a limit there. So I'm really curious to ask you, what can founders expect if they get investment from your side? They can expect that we will spend time with them if needed and necessary, at least a meeting once a week, um, frequent phone calls, and then we will put in the resources and network. We have a friends and family network, but we also have an entrepreneurs network in our fund who have invested in the fund for. So we have, you know, I think maybe... 30 individuals who have really built their own companies who have different skills that we can tap into. So one of my good friends is a former senior partner at McKinsey, and he's been involved in our latest investment, Develop Divers, who's addressing unconscious biases in recruitment. He's invested and become the chairman of the board, and he will also be a mentor for the founder. And you're using that network of founders who are also appeased, but as part of your value add. That's very, very interesting. What about on the funding path side? What are the operational implications of having that such hands-on approach? Because, you know, often we hear many funds claiming, right? That, oh yeah, we help. You actually have the data, (laughs) which is cool. So it's over three times the European average. So there must be something there. But I also guess that means there's a big effort, operationally speaking. And it would be really interesting to understand what that means. You know, how does that work inside of your fund? 
I think that it starts with the recruitment of the partner team. And the fact that many of us have been entrepreneurs ourselves helps PNL responsibility, strong strategic and business acumen is very, very important. From a practical point of view, we have a semi-annual deep dives where we decide on the value drivers for this particular company and what does our individual partner responsible for the case have to work with specifically for the next six months. So we are very structured in our assessment and work with the companies. On a weekly basis, we have partner meetings where we go through and discuss issues that are upcoming or and also, you know, try to share our network if yeah. somebody needs a specific competence or what have you. I don't believe and claim that we are any better than others who are also saying they are hands-on. <laughs> so so ultimately, it's the founders that needs to be <laughs> the judge of whether we are providing the anticipated assistance for them. Ah, it's, it's not about claiming. <laughs> it's just about <laughs> understanding what's behind that, that strategy of yours and, and what that means. It's really interesting because what I gather then is that the whole partnership of your funds is involved, but then one of you is allocated to each specific deal and focusing on whatever you decide in those semestral meetings or, or what have you. What about if we look on the other side, right? So the early stage, so more kind of the local partnerships. What are you doing from an operational perspective? You know, you shared with us an example of that feeder fund. That's super interesting, but I'd like to understand, you know, how are you partnering with earlier stage investors? Because that obviously, you know, plays a lot into your deal flow. So uh, pre-seed ventures that I used to run, we meet with them on a very regular basis. Uh, we hired and trained the team out there. That is an important job and I want to do more of that. It's like, a, I don't know, you, you know, if you get young people in, many of them want to become VCs. And I think if they have the right background and smart and P&L responsibility and business acumen, we should bring more of them in, in a sort of an apprenticeship or I don't know what you call it, uh, <laughs> but and train them for the next generation. But our relationship with the others is really in the sense that we meet with them regularly. We will also try to advise them on what needs to be happening with these specific companies in order for us to be ready to make a deep dive and assess whether we should invest. So we work with that. We work with different business angel groups. We see a number of family funds who also do direct investments that we can work with. But there are not that many pre-seed organized vehicles, I must say. So not here. Is it common in Denmark to have family offices doing direct investments as well? Yes. Yes. Oh, interesting. When you have an ecosystem that, that's lacking active pre-seed investors, one way of going about fixing that would be to create a scout program saying that we know that, for example, underrepresented founders are difficult to get funding to. So we'll find five people in that space and then we'll give them uh, uh, 200,000 euros or 500,000 euros per annum to invest to drive that deal flow for you. Is that a model you've been thinking about? We did that, you know, when I also was at uh, Pre-Seed Venture, Seed invested uh, up to, I think, 200,000 euros in a particular company in order to help with the deal flow. The positive side is you get involved earlier. The bad side is you have to invest in five in order to find one, at least. <laughs> you create some kind of anticipation and you have to disappoint so many, four, <laughs> at least <laughs> for every one you find. And to me, I think it's better to help them. If they're good and have the potential, it's not hard for them to want $2 million initially, and then we can help them. 
and we do take a lot of meetings just to get you know where where some of the investors or some of the founders they want to have some advice and we are very generous <laughs> doing yeah. that in order for us eventually to have as many good companies to look at as possible i think that's actually a super interesting point that you brought up with the reputational risk associated to scout programs because people expect now nah, i got an investment from seed capital and and then i mean that route they're with me now but that's just not the name of the game when it's scout investments so double down on that for all the people listening and thinking about scout programs that's something you have experience with hurting your reputation a bit i guess that's what we can learn from what you just said Yes and no. At one point, there was a little bit of that. I just tend to believe that the other side of it, which I didn't mention, is that once those money are out, there's an anticipation that then seed is ready to invest. And very rarely that is the case. They need another funding round before we're ready to deep dive. And so in order for us to stand, be generous and friendly, but just wait to invest when it's right, that for us is ideal and that's doable as long as there are other investors willing to do that and we're willing to pay a higher valuation of course if we can also wait longer well uh, we've been talking about the number of portfolio companies per partner and you being very hands-on and number of investments you want to do as a fund that also implies that you have a certain ownership target typically 15 to 20% as i understand it is that something that you're very strong on and don't really diverge from or is it something that that's what you want but if the deal is there then you'll do 10% and to what extent would you say do you have top of mind the division of companies that where you've been able to keep your ownership target or where you've had to give up on something so if you don't start out with 20% you never get there on this is very very expensive so we tend to start out with aiming for 20% ownership plus minus 1 or 2% we'll keep defending that through uh, ab rounds if the uh, big investments are actually coming into the companies it's harder and there's always a fight to protect your share and we try but it's also a limit like Trustpilot eventually we were the largest actually shareholder when we listed Trustpilot in March this year people didn't know that you know mm-hmm. seed capital who, who are they <laughs> <laughs> but that's sort of a testimony to our strategy but of course we were down at uh, I think 13%, I forget the details, but something like that. So we will get diluted a bit over the years. Awesome, Mola. I think it's time for the quick fire. We always end with this 30 to 60 second question round. Are you ready for it? Fire off. <laughs> First question is what verticals and maybe even business models excite you that the most people around you don't really feel that excited about? <laughs> I think that what we like is what people are excited about. That is a a SaaS-based software companies. And then the next question, what are your three top tips for VCs trying to attract follow-on capital to their portfolio? Demonstrate user love, significant commercial traction, unit economics, and a strong team in a large market. That was four. (laughs) <laughs> nah, that's fair, that's fair. Nah, it was an addendum to the final uh, point, I think. <laughs> well, aside from Fund 4, what can we expect in the future from you and C Capital? Another growth fund and a Fund 5 and a next gen of strong VCs in our team. Awesome, Ula. Thank you so much for joining us. I enjoyed, I listened a lot today because, you know, a lot for me to learn about the Danish ecosystem, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Super excited to have you and I hope to keep in touch with you. Thanks, David. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.